We need to consider that there's a lot of things in our lives that cause stress. We have a lot of commitments. And people ask Bridget and I, what's it like to have seven kids? What's it like to manage the time with seven kids? How do you do that? How, how is that possible? What, how is there enough time in the day? Well, the reality is we don't get any additional time. We just have to figure out how to make it work. I have work. I have my work here at the church. Bridget has her work in the home. And we have to balance out how that work works together with everything else that we have going on. We have yard work and housework. We have bills to pay. We have the busyness of just everyday life. And then you throw a few kids into the mix. And you have sports and you have extracurricular activities. (laughs) You have all of these things that take away from the time that we could be spending doing the things that we want to do. And the challenge is to figure out how to balance everything, how to juggle. Now, I was talking to Steve before the show, and we were talking a little bit about juggling. And I asked him, what, what, what's it like being a juggler? What are some of the keys to juggling? And he was reminding me, and he showed me similar to what he showed you at the beginning of the show, uh, that you have to focus on what's in front of you. And let me assist him a little bit. Thank you. And as he throws the balls up in the air, as he throws the apples up in the air, by the way, I apologize for the lights. We really weren't trying to torture you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is hard up here in front of the lights. Uh, as he throws those up in the air, there's an amount of time that each object stays up in the air. And just like Steve has the props that he juggles up here, we have the commitments in our lives. And every commitment that we have, we throw it up for a period of time, and then it comes back down. But sometimes we have to focus on a commitment more so than the others. And when we have a commitment that stands up, that requires a little extra attention, you'll note that the other commitments, they have a little bit more hang time. We have to throw them up a little bit higher because we have to keep things going as these commitments are in front of us. Let's give Steve a round of applause. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank very you. Much. Appreciate Thank it. you. I appreciate it. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank Some you. of us are better at commitments than others. Some of us are comfortable having lots of commitments, lots of things going on in our lives. But a few things hold true for all of us. Number one, the more commitments that we have, the more props that we have when we're trying to juggle this thing called life, the higher we have to throw them up in the air. And as we were talking about the secrets to juggling, he said that you always have to look at the, you have to look at the top. You have to keep the arc in sight. Where's the path that the objects that you're juggling are going. But as you add commitments, as you add props to what you're juggling, the arc goes higher and higher, and you have more hang time. And yes, there's more time in between when the commitment leaves your touch until it returns back down. But it's harder to see. It's harder to keep track of. And even Steve, as as good of a magician as he is, as good of a juggler as he is, no matter who we brought up here, there is a limit to how much they can juggle at one time. And we all have a limit in our lives, in our relationships with one another, as to how many commitments we can juggle at one time. He's missing his ball. He's missing. Steve, are you missing a ball? Behind the devil. Yes. Thank you. There it is. Behind the devil. I hope we don't have that on tape. It's right behind the devil on stage. That'll be posted online. Thank you very much. So what, 
what is up with commitment in Northern Virginia? Why are we so driven to overcommit? Why are we so driven to add additional commitments to our schedule? We have this, this draw, this drive for productivity. We always want to get more done. It doesn't matter if it damages relationships. It doesn't matter if things fall bet- between the cracks. It doesn't matter if one commitment comes in and it trumps the other commitment, even though we don't see it coming. No matter what we see, we just keep driving for more and more, and we keep bringing commitments into our lives. We have calendars that are multicolored. We have sticky tabs on top of, on top of sticky tabs. We have to-do lists for our to-do lists to track it all. Everything that we have, it's like the rat in the wheel just running around and around and around, multitasking as at exponential levels. Why are we so driven to push more and put more into our lives? We're at the grocery store, and we're on the phone with our kids, reading a magazine in the checkout aisle, trying to correct our kids. And then we say, hold on to the person on the phone so we can swipe our fast pay to get out of the grocery store quicker. We fly around. The example that comes to mind for me is in the cars when we drive. We fly place to place, always in a hurry. Speed through parking lots. We pull in backwards so we can get out quicker at the end. We don't sit at stoplights. Who would, who would waste the time sitting at a stoplight anymore when you can be productive at a stoplight? Who would have ever thought 20 years ago that our cars will be our productivity tools? That while we're sitting at a red light, we're going to focus on the text or the email that we didn't finish at the last red light. Who would have thought that we would actually hope for red lights so that we can come up and finish and hit send before it turns green? Who would have thought that? Who would have thought that instead of trying to go to a hotspot to get connectivity, that we just have it in our car? Who would have thought that? Why do we constantly push the limits even when we know it's damaging to our relationships and to our life? Why do we do this? Why do we cram everything in? Our time is so important. Some people think time is really important. Some people think time is what? Money. Exactly. Some people would argue that time is money. So, of course, we have to be careful with our time because it is money. Now, it's not physically money, but it is important. But yet, when we look at time, we don't look at it the same way that we look at money, do we? If I asked you right now, how much money do you have in the bank? You might not know the exact figure. But you would have a ballpark. You would be able to tell me how much is roughly in your checking account, in your savings account. You might even be able to give me some good numbers on your 401k, other investments you have. You would be able to tell me how much money you spent today, how much money you spent roughly this week, this month, last year. We track it. We pay close attention to our money. But yet we don't pay nearly as much attention to our time. Why is that? Why don't we focus on time as much as we focus on money, even though we say that they're the same thing? And I would argue that time is our most valuable asset. I would argue that it's even more important than the money that we have. So with our most valuable asset, what are we to do? Are we supposed to come up with a system? 
Now, some people didn't even come tonight because they knew that I was speaking. And they were like, the anal retentive German guy is going to stand up and give me a, a time management system because that's the way he's wired. And I, I could do that. I have my personal favorites, and that is how I'm wired. But the problem is, if I gave you a, a time management system, like any other system, eventually it would fail. It might sync up with your personality. It might not. And if it doesn't sync up, you would just throw it away right away. If it does sync up, you would try it for a period of time, but eventually it would wear out because all systems wear down and wear out over a period of time, even if they do sync up with you. So it's not good enough to have a system. What we need is a principle. We need a guide. We need something that helps us understand how we can balance our time and live lives that aren't overcommitted. We need a guiding principle. Several years ago, Bridget and I found a principle that changed our lives. Literally changed our marriage, changed how we approach one another, changed how we handled commitments, changed our decision-making process. One thing, one principle changed how we looked at our time commitments. And that's what I want to share with you tonight. And if you look at it and you say, if I can change my time, and if we say that the time is life, because when we really think about it, that's what our life is made up of. It's made up of time. That principle could not only change our time, it could change our life. It could change our marriages. It could change our families. So that's what I want to spend some time looking at tonight. One principle I would say this, every couple can effectively manage their time and experience joy by doing this one thing. You can manage your time better and you can experience the joy that comes along with that because there is great joy that comes along with removing yourself from the overcommitment, from the rat race, from the tendency to dive into things that we shouldn't be diving into. In this one thing, will change how you look at decision-making. But before we begin, we have, to, we have to set the context of the conversation tonight. So we have, to, we have to agree upon a few things. So just us right here, you and I, we need to agree on a few things before we get started. Because if we don't agree on these aspects, on these attributes of time, then what we go into with the principle isn't going to make much sense. So let me see if I can get you to buy in to a few aspects I believe are true about time. The first is, time is finite. Time has a beginning and an end for us. In other words, our life is finite. We have a time when we're born. We have a time when we die. We have the, the, the time in between, which is our life. Time is finite. The Bible tells us that, that our life is like a, like a hand vapor. In other words, on a cold day, if you blew your if you blew your warm breath into your hand, it's gone just like that. The Bible would tell us that we're, we're like flowers of the field. We grow, we blossom, and a very short season later, we're gone. Time is finite. If time is finite, and we can't get any more of it, we can't increase 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, can't increase the months or years, 
There's no more room to grow. So whenever we say yes to a commitment, we say no to another commitment. There's no such thing as adding time to take on a new commitment. Whenever something comes in, it naturally pushes something out at the other end. So we have to pay attention. Are, are we in agreement on that? That time is finite. Okay, cool. We're on the same page. One more. Time is short. It goes by quickly. It's interesting to me that everyone comes to a point in their life where they want time to go from coming faster to coming slower. Every person reaches that point. Some of you might still on the, on, on the beginning end where, where you want time to go quicker. You're looking forward to something really big that's coming up and, and you want the time to fly because you can't wait to get there. And even as we get older, there are certain events, certain milestones, expecting a marriage, expecting to have kids, looking forward to retirement. We might look forward to that event, but there is a turning point in our lives when we want life to slow down. When we're young, it's like, I can't wait to get out of high school. Can't wait to go away to college. Can't wait to drive. We're looking forward. To, we just want time to go, 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 go. But there comes a point, and for all of us, it's different, when we shift and we say, oh, no, please slow down. I can't believe that I only have three years left of my little boy before he goes away to college. I want time to slow down right now. But it's not. And time is short. Are we in agreement that time is short? Good, good. Now, if we agree the time is finite, we only have so much of it, we can't get any more, and we agree that that time is short, it is brief, that life goes by quickly, then it makes our principle that we're going to look at tonight even more important than it was at the beginning because life is finite and life is short. We're going to spend some time tonight in the book of Ephesians. It's a date night. I'm not expecting you to bring your Bible, but if you have your Bible with you or if you have it on your phone, we're going to spend a little bit of time in a very short section of the book of Ephesians. And that's where we find the principle that we're going to look at tonight. Now, before we, we dive into Ephesians too much, we have to understand a little bit about the context. First, this is a letter. This is a letter written by a guy named Paul. Now, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. Um, Paul was going around planting churches, starting churches, encouraging churches, giving leadership and guidance to churches. Paul was a strong follower of Jesus. And as he went around, he imparted great wisdom and guidance to these churches. And in Ephesus, one of the, church, one of the cities at that time, still around today, in Ephesus, there was an early church, a young church. And Paul is writing to that young church in this letter from Paul to the Ephesians. Now, Paul likes the Ephesians. So there's some of the churches that Paul writes to, and he's like, boy, you guys are a train wreck. You're a mess. You know, I came and taught you. I went away, and when the cat's away, the mice will play, and everything's falling apart. You guys are running this thing into the ground. But some of the churches he's really excited about. And when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he tells them just how proud he is of them. He encourages them. He tells them that he's praying for them, that he sees and he's heard about from other people, their faith. So these guys are rocking it. They're doing really well. So much so that they're growing in their faith. 
So Paul recognizes that these guys, not being a young church, but being a church that's maturing quickly, that they're ready for more. And as I ask you to turn to Ephesians, if you've been married for any period of time, uh, if you've gone to church for any period of time, when we typically talk about Ephesians at a marriage event, we look right to the end of Ephesians chapter 5. There's a great section at the end of Ephesians chapter 5 where it talks about husbands, and then it talks about wives, it talks about children, and it talks about how families function well. And we tend to gravitate toward that as family members to figure out how we make this thing called family work. But what we often skip past is there's a context to the end of that chapter. There's a backdrop to the end of that chapter. And that's what we're going to hone in on tonight. But before we turn there, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2, just very quickly. Because as Paul greets this young church in this letter, he's constantly reminding them of something. He's reminding them of them of who they are as Jesus followers. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, For grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace. What, what is grace? Grace is forgiveness. What are they forgiven from? Well, the Ephesian church is forgiven from the same thing that all of the churches that Paul wrote to are forgiven from. The same thing that this church, the people of this church, are forgiven of. And that is turning away from God. God has a law that requires perfect, perfect performance. And the problem is that nobody at that time, and none of the churches that Paul was writing to, and no one in this room, including me, live perfect lives. We all choose to turn away from God. So for by grace, through forgiveness, you have been saved. What are we saved from? Well, if we looked at another one of Paul's letters, we realized that the wages of sin, the wages of us making decisions to turn away from God is death. Now, we're all going to die sometime. But what he's referring to here is eternal death, death being separation. We die from this earth. We're separated from life on this earth. But he's talking about dying separation from God eternally. So by grace, by the forgiveness of God, we've been saved from that, through faith. Through faith in what? Through faith in who? Through faith in Jesus. Because this early church had talked to first, second, third-hand witnesses who saw Jesus walk the earth, die on a cross, and then talk to him for 40 days after. 500 people saw him rise from the dead. And then they started putting the pieces together to recognize that life comes through him, eternal life comes through him if we have faith. So Paul is constantly reminding them of that good news, the gospel. Then he reminds that they're united in that faith, in that common faith, that there's unity in the body of believers. And then right before he gets into the details of how family works, he comes up for air and he sets a context. And the context gives us the guidance on how we make decisions, how we balance life. Here's the context to having the family he describes at the end of chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, 
not as unwise, but as wise. He's saying, okay, young church in Ephesus, you're doing great. You're progressing in your faith. You're understanding intellectually what we were talking about, about faith in Christ. You're starting to live it out. But now, 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 pay attention to how you walk. Pay attention to what's in front of you. Look ahead and see what's in front of you, not as someone that is unwise, but as someone that is wise. Not as someone that looks at life through the perspective of their own experience, but one that looks at life through the perspective, through the lens of what I say about life. Look carefully as you walk, not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he continues on. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. Now, Paul's covering a whole spectrum here. And we're going to start at the far end first, the most extreme, and then we're going to work our way backwards because we, we do need to acknowledge the entire spectrum for this verse to really make sense. What he's saying is the days are evil. In other words, the days, that point in history, at that time, in Ephesus, there's lots of evil. And we don't have to look far outside of our Bible to understand that. We just look at some history books and we see that during that time, around the time of the Roman Empire, there was Roman oppression. Women and children were completely degraded. They were property. They had no rights. There was rampant poverty. Sexuality, immoral sexuality was totally out of control. Corinth, where Paul writes another letter, was the Las Vegas of the day on steroids. For a good time, go to Corinth. It was out of control. So there was a lot of sin. There was a lot of ugliness going on in the world at that time. So what Paul is saying is the days are evil around you. And the folks that were in Ephesus in that young church, they were tempted. They were tempted by what what they saw going on around them. They had a past life. And we'd be silly to think that they wouldn't think about going back to that life because the days are evil. I don't think that's probably the majority of us here tonight. So when we look at juggling life and juggling commitments, we probably aren't making the decision between going back to extreme sin and something that is good. So we're not saying, honey, I know it's our anniversary, but didn't you realize that this is the annual Falls Church pub crawl? I mean, it's not that extreme, right? We're not saying, we're not saying I, I, know, I know that, that Susan has a, a, a play tonight, but you know, I have to wait until after hours so I can clean out the register at the store. We're we're probably not saying that. We're not looking at the difference between something that is good and just downright dark, nasty sin. So that's why we have to back up to the beginning of this verse and recognize that Paul's covering a whole spectrum here. He's saying, make the best use of time. He's saying that you have time, and we agreed at the beginning that it's finite and it's short. So with the time that you have, make the best use of it. Make wise choices. 
Live as one that is wise, not unwise. Sometimes we have to say no to good things so we can say yes to the best things. Most of us in this room probably are not looking at our marriage versus some deep, dark sin. But we're still overcommitted and we have choices to make. Most of our choices are good things versus the best things. Should we take the promotion? Is it worth it? When we look at how much time I spend at the office right now versus how much time I'll spend at the office if I take the promotion, should I do it? The promotion isn't sin, unless you're in some sort of industry that I shouldn't know about. The promotion isn't sin. The promotion might even be a good thing. But for your marriage, for your family, it might be a really bad thing. Those are the decisions that we're making. Should we play travel soccer? Should we allow them to do it? Should we play travel basketball? Should they be on the, the, should they be in the traveling band? Should they take up art, be in this program for the kids? They're not bad things. And I'll even go here. Should, should I volunteer at church? Volunteering at church, not, not a bad thing particularly if you're willing to help in family ministry. (laughs) Not a bad thing at all. But sincerely, there might be a point where it's a really bad thing. In the context of the decision and the life and the stage that you're at right now, it's not bad. It's just that's not the best thing to do. That's what Paul is saying. And then he concludes with this. He says, therefore, do not be foolish. This is a repeat of above. Foolishness, unwise, same thing. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What the will of the Lord is for you. What does he desire for you to do when it comes to this decision around your time? What does he desire for you to do? So what is the Lord saying here? What's the principle? What's the What's the principle we can walk away with tonight that will drastically change how we look at our commitments? It's this. Every couple can effectively manage their time and experience joy by walking wisely. By walking wisely. We have the choice to choose wisdom and to choose foolishness. Again, hopefully I reined it in for you. It's typically not this deep, dark sin versus something good. It's just a good thing versus the best thing in the context of the time and the season when you're making that decision. We have an opportunity to choose wisely. And that's where our joy comes from. Now, there's a few areas that we all have in common. We have the area of work. We have the time that we spend either working at home, working with the children, working in the office. It takes a big chunk of our time. We have the area of rest. We all share that. At some point during the day, we're going to lay our head down on the pillow. We have another big area of relationship, and I'll, ju- I'll group everything in there. Relationship with spouse, relationship with kids, relationship with friends. You have relationship. And then you have the other. The other might be entertainment. The other might be our commute. You have all the others that squeeze into that time. 
And maybe this is proportional. Maybe this is a little bit off for some of you. But these are all areas that we look at. Now, fortunately, God doesn't leave us hanging. He has something to say about each of these areas. So we're going to spend the next few weeks in Homefront talking about each of these areas. So if one of these stands out to you as an area that you really want to learn more about, I'd love for you to join us at Homefront. Homefront's very much an environment like this. A little bit of teaching, some discussion questions to talk about. No juggler, no magic, um, no dessert, um, no decorations. But, you know, you get the point. It's, it's very similar. But we do have coffee. We have lots of coffee. And John will tell you a little bit more about Homefront at the end. So if you want to look at any of those areas, you can come back and join us. But for tonight, let's just look at that big principle again and how it applies. Because maybe that's a little bit too vague just to say to walk wisely. So what does it exactly mean that every couple can effectively manage their time and experience joy by walking wisely. What's the application to that? How does that work in my life? How can you, now that we've heard this, now that we've talked, now that we've looked in Ephesians, how can you walk wisely? A couple things for you. First off, wait to respond. When a commitment presents itself to you and you have an opportunity to say yes, just give it some time. If you want a rule of thumb, use the 24-hour rule. Huge benefits in your marriage by waiting to respond. I don't know if you've ever gotten the, you didn't, did you? Look, it's like something like this. You know, like they kind of cock their head and look out the top of their eye like, you did what? You agreed to what? You said what? You said we would what? Yeah, I've, I've gotten that a few times. So I know what the look looks like. Wait to respond, because through waiting, you have time to seek wise counsel. If you respond right away in the moment, you don't have time to seek wise counsel. Now, seek wise counsel, one way you can seek wise counsel, in the way that I would love to see you seek wise counsel, is in the Word of God. That's the wisest counsel that you're going to get. We're going to talk about that on Sunday at Homefront. Spend time in God's Word. But... In addition to seeking wise counsel directly for you in God's word, you also have the opportunity to seek wise counsel from the person you're sitting next to. And if you respond right away, you don't get that counsel before you respond, and you're not on the same page. And then beyond that, you can seek wise counsel from the people that God has put in your life. Because there's probably someone around you or in your life that you know either in church or from church or in your community that you trust their opinion, and they'll be able to give you wise counsel. And then finally, be comfortable saying no. Some of us, that's so hard. We hate to say no. Be comfortable saying no. It's okay. And it's good. Because if you say yes, like we talked about earlier, something comes up, something comes in, and something else goes out. Be comfortable saying no. You can... You can effectively manage your time and experience joy by walking wisely. You can. If you take the time, wait to respond, seek wise counsel in the areas that we looked at, and if you can be comfortable saying no, able to say no, you can walk wisely. And when you walk wisely, you will experience joy. Could you imagine, just take for a minute, take the time to imagine what it would look like in your marriage if you live that out, 
If you actually waited, you didn't respond in the moment, you came home and you sought counsel, do you, could you imagine what it would look like if you said to your husband, said to your wife, you know, I, 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 I want to think about this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into God's word and I'm going to see if I get an answer to that. And then if you feel like you got an answer to go back and say, I, I think this is the right thing to do. Or if you ask somebody that is in your shepherd group, in your community group, in your circle of influence, and they led you wisely, would that make a difference in your marriage? If you took the time to wait, you sought wise counsel. And then what if you were really bold? What if you were really bold and and you had the courage to say no sometimes? You didn't just agree to it because they asked you. You just, you, 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 you let go of the feeling, I'm the only one that can really do this the right way. It's gotta be me. Or they wouldn't have asked me if I wasn't the right person for the job. They wouldn't have asked me if I wasn't the right person for the volunteer role. Maybe you are a good person for that role, but maybe it's just not the right time. Would it change your marriage if you took the time to walk wisely? I think it would bring you great joy. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much that you remind us in your word, uh, Father, that our time is limited that, Lord, it is short. So we need to use it, and then you tell us how to use it, Lord. You remind us to use our time wisely, Father. Father, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us courage to take the steps to apply wisdom? Would you allow us to take time to consider a decision before you make it? Would you allow us to seek counsel from a wise source? And would you give us the courage to say no sometimes? Father, when we walk wisely, you bless us. So, Father, will you allow us to walk wisely for your glory? Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.